Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canning Calls. I'm your long-absent host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of interviewing a good friend of ours at Canon Press, Glenn Sunshine. He's got a new book out called 32, Christians Who Changed Their World. You can pre-order Glenn's book at canonpress.com right now. And without further ado, meet Dr. Glenn Sunshine. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Glenn Sunshine. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Of course. So this is, uh, I haven't done a lot of episodes lately. So this is the first of the year and it should be, you know, recurring guest. You were on the day of the election, I think last, uh, two years ago, three years ago now. So welcome back. 2020. Yep. 2020. What, uh, you know, what did we know then? You know, we were just, we were naive and we thought, well, I guess it was November. So maybe we knew full well. Yeah. It's anarchy out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I don't think we could have anticipated exactly how bad it was going to be, but it was pretty clear it was going to be bad. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we recorded before and I asked, you know, give me your take on the election. And, you know, it was, that was nuts. So welcome back. Uh, Tamer times perchance. So you were on for that. Uh, you were on for that episode to talk about your book, Slaying Leviathan, came out in Mm -hmm. 2020. That followed up, uh, your introduction. To Vindicii, yep. which was one of the biggest books uh, at Canon the year of 2020. Which, if if you don't know, Vindicii, uh, that's a book well into the public domain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was not b- breaking news, brand new. Uh, and I think just the timing and and the right introduction and everything else, that thing that thing sailed. Did that surprise you? A little bit, yeah, because you don't expect books written by Huguenots in the 16th century in the middle of the wars of religion to feel like they've got a lot of resonance today, but that one sure does. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that is the, you know, maybe that's the French Huguenot difference there. Uh, Like I said, and then followed that up with Slaying Leviathan, and now you're back in Moscow. Welcome back. And we're here to talk about your new book, 32. Christians Who Changed Their World. So this is short biographies. Uh, do you want to tell us just a little bit about it? And and then I'm interested to hear why that book. Okay, yeah. Um, let me answer why the book, because sure. that will explain the what of the book. Perfect. Um, I uh, was asked, uh, I, I worked with Chuck Colson during the last eight years of his life, really pretty consistently, uh, in terms of teaching worldview and things like that. And in one of the uh, programs uh, called the Centurions, now known as the Colson Fellows, they asked me to speak just before this class that had been working through this stuff for a full year, just before they were graduating. Okay. And I thought, all right, they're not, they don't need more heavy content. This is not yeah. the time for that. You know? And then they gave me the title, Christians Who Changed Their World. And knowing Chuck, I figured he's thinking, you know, Mother, uh, well, he's thinking William Wilberforce first. Okay. But, you know, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, you know, okay. those sorts of people. And I looked at that and I thought, yeah, too easy. <laughs> um, I wanted to pick people. Okay. I set myself a bunch of criteria. I wanted people who were unknown, who were not in the clergy, or if they were in the clergy, were doing things that we don't normally associate with the clergy, okay. um, and in a variety of walks of life. 
Um, so I did this talk, Christians Who Changed Their World. Chuck loved it. Um, he said, we need to have this at every residency. There are three residencies a year. You don't need it at all three. <laughs> um, but so the next time I did it, I picked a different set. Okay. And that turned into a series of articles uh, back in the days when Breakpoint was publishing articles. Okay. Um, and then I collected those. Um, I did 60 some odd of them and wanted to uh, shop it off to other publishers and nobody wanted it. Okay. Because they said nobody's going to be interested in people reading a book about people they've never heard of. Yeah. Except that was the whole point. Yeah. What do you what do you think Chuck saw that these acquisition departments didn't? He told me that he thought it was the best illustration of worldview in practical terms that he had seen. Because what it does, what 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 was what was true of all of these people, they do all different kinds of things. But they were operating out of a view of the world that was shaped by their faith. And they saw the relevance of their faith to what they were doing. So you could look at someone like uh, Euler, who is a, a, a certifiable genius. There are people in physics who say that everything new that's discovered in physics is named after the second person who discovered it because Euler was the first and everybody, everything would be named after him. Yeah. You know? So it's absolute genius. But he saw what he was doing as an expression of his faith, as a, an outworking of his faith and his, and his belief. He recognized that what he was doing was a sacred calling, even though it's math and physics. That, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if this would resonate with you, but when I think back when I was in high school and uh, grew up going to church and basically anytime the church was open, my family was there. We did, I did the youth group and the whole thing. Um, and I remember thinking, um, you know, uh, oh, I like being a church. I read my Bible mm. semi-often, but I remember having this creeping feeling in the back, like, oh no, do I have to be a pastor? <laughs> uh, like, is, does this mean I'm called? And like, what does that mean? And oh no, should I, <laughs> I just remember that panicking feeling. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate? Oh yeah. When I was in high school, I was in a church that functionally believed that if you were serious about your faith, you'd be a missionary. Oh, yeah. If you were kind of a slacker, you'd be a pastor. Okay. <laughs> um, and, w yeah. w but, and I, 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 I just, it did never felt right to me. Yeah. Uh, when I went to Michigan state, uh, I had a professor there, uh, Fred Graham, who, without doing it expressly, taught me about the cultural mandate. Okay. And, you know, he, he specialized in courses that I called Christianity and. So Christianity and natural science, Christianity okay. and business ethics, Christianity and. Yep. Uh, he had a course called Mythopoeia, Fantasy is Theology. Cool. Um, you know, a whole series of courses like that. And what, what I learned from Fred is that the gospel has an impact in all areas of life, that we are called to bring the gospel to bear and to bring redemption to bear in everything we do. Whatever our calling in life is, we're to be bringing Christ's redemption and the kingdom into it. And that's shaped everything I have done ever since, and it's really foundational to what we're doing in the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, this kind of book, uh, and, and to the point of not knowing who they are, it almost is, works even better that these are people who uh, the gospel was a foundational motivator, but that didn't only mean or or na narrowly mean just pulpits. Right. This meant education or uh, helping Jews escape the Nazis. Right. Uh, 
you have quite a spectrum. What what are what are what what are some of the like furthest ends of the spectrum you feature? Uh, I would look at well, this came up in an earlier conversation. I would look at a woman named Sorkaktani Becky. Yeah, Sorkaktani Becky was Genghis Khan's daughter-in-law. Okay. And what most people don't know is that Genghis Khan, after his family was was murdered, he took refuge in a Mongol tribe that were Nestorian Christians. Okay. And the daughter of one of the the Khans in that tribe ended up marrying one of his sons. Okay. Long story there, which I go through in the book. She became known as the mother of Khans. She became the mother of several of the great Khans, Genghis Khan's successors, yep. uh, including she's Kublai Khan's mother. Wow. Um, and she she was a tough person. You really didn't want to cross her. I mean, yeah. let's just let's just be clear here. Yeah. But she was known in China. Her her husband was given China as his part of the the Mongol Empire to rule. And when he died, she continued ruling it for him. And she was respected and and, and appreciated by the Buddhists by the Confucians, by the Muslims, by the Christians, everybody thought that she treated them well, yeah. um, including the farmers, the peasants, who normally the Mongols didn't want to have anything to do with them. They treated them with complete contempt. Okay. She didn't. She treated them well. As a matter of fact, there was a, someone from Persia came who, after, after seeing her in action, commented that if he could find another woman like her, he said that he would then believe that the race of women was superior to the race of men. Wow. She's a really impressive figure. Wow. Scary yeah. at times, yeah. but but really impressive. Yeah. So we've got that on the one hand. I assume totally overlooked by the feminist movement. They don't know anything <laughs> about it. Now you go to you go to Mongolia, they remember her. Yeah. And okay. they will tell you, yeah, she was Christian. Yeah. You know, they you know, Mongolia is now a majority Tibetan Buddhist. Okay. Um, but the Tibetan Buddhists, the shamanists, and even the atheists there hold her in high regard and will tell you, yeah, she was a Christian. Yeah. So yeah. That's I, that's on one end. Right. Okay. Um, on the other end, you can look at people like Chiyune Sugihara, who is a was a Jap Japanese diplomat during World War II, who ended up when he saw what was going on and what was the impending situation in Lithuania where he was stationed, violating orders from his government, he issued exit visas for Jews. And there are literally tens of thousands of people that are alive today that wouldn't had Sugihara not done that. Wow. 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 So yeah, quite a spectrum. <laughs> uh, as you go across, um, one thing if folks haven't heard, you did uh, an interview with Pastor Wilson this morning, um, <clears throat> sort of as biography, uh, as just an encouragement to imitation and yep. edification in that way. Mm -hmm. I I'm curious, as you did all of these, the cover spectrums, uh, can you tell me what, what was the time again? What's the space of time? Well, we start, I think the first one that's in this book is 5th century. Okay. 5th century to modern day, just about. Right. What are some of the – are there character traits that show up from the 5th century to modern day over and over again? Any of note? Yeah. The things that I would point to are people who, number one, knew what they believed and understood 
how it fit with their particular callings in life. Another characteristic that I would point to is courage. It isn't exhibited in all of them, but in many of them, what they did, they did at at personal risk, um, professional risk, if not you know physical danger, yeah. um, and yet they continued to be faithful in their calling and approaching it from the perspective of their Christian faith, bringing their faith to bear in what they were doing, redeeming their calling. Right. Yeah. I. I. I wonder. So, given the biography and its edification and sort of inspiration in the time that's been a uh certainly a theme of your works here at canon slaying leviathan mm-hmm. is uh at least retrieving your history and or the christian's history in uh in resistance mm-hmm. um and civil resistance can what what would if you could give maybe one of these figures uh to christians today as Hey, these are similar contexts, maybe not the same exact context, but they rhyme. Uh, I would encourage you to follow this person's lead. Who, who, who would you want to put forward? Well, the one that comes to mind right away is Hunayn Ibn Ishaq. <laughs> People are going to have a time mm-hmm. pronouncing these. Yeah. 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 Hunayn Ibn Ishaq okay. was a Christian living in the Muslim world who became a physician and began working as a translator of Greek medical works and actually with his son Aristotle and several others from Greek into Arabic, sometimes via Syriac in between. So actually the great uh, history of, of Islamic medicine and philosophy owes its roots to this Christian guy who was translating. Wow. And he did this. He was he was well rewarded for his work. Okay. But as a Christian, he was very definitely a second class citizen, and he was in a very a precarious situation. At one point, the Sultan told him, "All right, you 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 know drugs and medicine. I want you to make a poison to kill these people." And he said, "I can't do that." The Sultan threw him in prison for a year, pulled him out after a year, and said to him, "Okay." Either you make compound this poison or I will behead you. Wow. And he said, I can't do it. And the Sultan, the Sultan at that point relented. And to cover himself, yeah. he said, Well, this was just a test. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to see how you, 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 you would respond. Sure. And um, rather than be bested by some. Right. Yeah. And so when they asked him later why he didn't do it, he said there are two reasons. First of all, as a physician, I am sworn to do no harm and to only heal. But second is my faith, which tells me I am to love even my enemies, how much more my friends and people that I know. It's very good. Now, the reason why I pick him yeah. is, granted, he was in a prominent place in society at that point. But it was a society that was actively hostile to him and to what he believed. And while they were quite willing to use him for things that were valuable, at any moment, if the sultan did get mad at him, he could have lost his life. And yet he was still willing to do that. And as we're facing increasing hostility in our world, it's people like him that we need to look at. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting too when you think of um, this comes up with uh, members of law enforcement, but as you mentioned, the medical community as they're continued to encourage to do things that are number one against the uh, forget the name of it, the Hippocratic oath, the Hippocratic oath, as well as the Constitution. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, their first thing is as they look back on things that cross the line. I I was just doing my job. I was just doing what I was told. Right. And there isn't. And where have we heard that before? I was only following orders. There you go. Right. Yeah. That brings up another example. Um, Andre Trochme and his wife Magda. Okay. Uh, They were, uh, Andre was a pastor of a Huguenot church, French Protestant church, in France during World War II. And he and his congregation collaborated in hiding Jews and smuggling them to Switzerland. Again, saving hundreds and hundreds of lives. And the interesting thing about it is the Nazis knew that something was going on. They arrested Trochme. They put him in prison. Couldn't get any information to to try him. Eventually had to release him. And no one, not a single person in the village talked. Nobody did. Crazy. Um, in in the spite of all in spite of all kinds of inducements and frankly the fear of the Nazis, yeah, nobody talked. Wild. And the interesting thing about this is that this the way they did this. Now the, there's the official story and there's what really happened. What really happened, you know, the official story is they just hid them in the woods. Okay. What really happened is back in the, well, in 1685, Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes that allowed limited toleration for Protestants in France. And the Protestants began to be persecuted. Well, this area was heavily Huguenot. And what they did is they established hidden rooms and secret paths that allowed them to smuggle Bibles and pastors in and out of the region to Switzerland. Okay. They reactivated, they kept them hidden. Once, once Protestantism was legalized again, religious freedom in France after the revolution, they never told anybody, they never showed these things to anybody. And they simply reactivated them when they needed to, to get the Jews out. And if you go there today, they will deny this. If you get to know them really well, yeah. they will say, and they trust you, they will say, well, yeah, those things really do exist, but we never show them to outsiders because we never know when we'll need them again. Very cool. That's very, very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, there, there's this sort of brings up um, just as a behind the scenes of of the marketing here internally at Canon. When we think about, as we were thinking about your book, um, we thought about adding qualifiers to things such as uh like for example uh would it is it would it be true to say uh 32 normal christians uh who changed their world or or to go go the other way where it was 32 extraordinary christians who changed their world and and one thing i always wanted to to balance was it's a it, there's there's both you i never wanted to market that these were uh, Christians who had like green in their veins or, mm-hmm. you know, they were injected with mm-hmm. super juice, super Christian juice. Right. And, uh, isn't that cool? We also have superheroes. You probably couldn't do this stuff. 
Well, I didn't want that kind of thing. But then also with the normal, you don't want to just throw them off. They did incredible feats. They have incredible feats of courage mm-hmm. and and those kind of things. Did you feel that? Do you have that? Did you ever think through that internally as well? Of, um, you know, how do you offer these stories in a way that's compelling to others? Well, my entire goal in this was to show how people in whatever walk of life, whoever you are, can do great things for the kingdom and for the world simply by living at your faith where you are. Now, in some cases, you know, when you're dealing with um, with people in math and physics and stuff like that, these are, are extraordinarily intelligent, gifted, gifted individuals. Yep. I mean, so we've got some of those. But you also just have this this pastor in a little little village in Western France. Yeah, right. You know, so I, I wanted to try to give a spectrum yep. here. Um, you know, the point is that when you live your faith out faithfully, wherever you are, you may not get a name. I'm, I'm sure nobody in the, that's listening to this has probably heard of Hunayn ibn Ishaq. Okay. Probably not. Um, but doesn't matter whether your name gets known. It doesn't matter whether you make it into the history book. So what matters is that you're faithful in what you're doing, yep. and you can still make a great impact on the people around you, on the world around you, and do it in the name of Christ and th- yep. and and through the the cultural mandate, the cultural commission that He's given us. Absolutely, and, and one thing, a canon. Uh, and and here in town and the ministries in town is one thing we've always wanted to push is a simple obedience in that in the same direction over a long period of time sets you up for in great and incredible feats that that the Lord blesses and that that you know you're working and the and the Lord will 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 give give the growth and so yeah it was it was an interesting marketing discussion about this because as we got this in our acquisitions department and we thought like this was a no-brainer for us that these mm-hmm. were despite nobody knowing them these are people who who are doing just that mm-hmm. and luckily for them you know Dr. Sunshine will give them their due yeah it, i really enjoy tracking them down that's awesome it, it's a lot of fun so who would you say uh in, in this book who has been sort of disrespected uh, the most in the history books, like who, 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 uh, who's been sort of overlooked, maybe not intentionally, but overlooked in the, in the history books, but ought to have much more shine. Uh, just about everybody in the book. It's yeah. kind of hard to pick one. Okay. Um, there are some of them that, that historians know well, okay. but there are a lot of them that are frankly just very obscure. Yeah. So, uh, one person that I knew of, but what but I learned a lot in your section was Leif Erikson. Yeah, um, most people think of Leif Erikson as a Viking, and that is in fact correct. Okay. But what most people <laughs> don't realize is that there were Christian Vikings. Now, okay. now we need to wor- use the word Viking in the way it's popularly used. People from from Norway, Sweden, Denmark during this period. Okay. I mean, he didn't go raiding or, yeah, or slaughtering or anything pillaging. like that. Yeah. So, so um, Leif Erikson's father was Eric the Red, who founded the uh, the colony, the Norse colony in Greenland. Okay. 
Um, And the reason he founded the Norse colony in Greenland is because he'd been exiled from Iceland for murdering somebody. And the reason he was in Iceland is he was exiled from Norway for murdering somebody. So Eric the Red is not, you know, he's, he's not necessarily... A good friend and neighbor. Maybe a yeah. traditional Viking. Yeah, ver- ver- very much so. Yeah. And Leif Erikson left Greenland, went back to Norway, where he met the king, um, let's see, that Olaf I, I believe it was, okay. who had converted to Christianity. Okay. Now, Olaf's conversion to Christianity uh, needs probably needs a bit of an asterisk. Okay. Because he was, in fact, I, I believe he was a Christian, but... Let's just say he wasn't discipled effectively. Um, uh, He would, for example, tell people they needed to convert, and if they refused, he'd have them tortured or or killed. Um, He actually blockaded Ireland, uh, excuse me, not Ireland, Iceland at one point to force it to adopt Christianity. I mean, so he, he, yeah, so. Yeah, he missed out on that on like a member class, new member class he missed out on. Yeah, yeah. um, Forced conversions. Yeah, we we don't do that. But Leif arrived there and he was at Olaf's court and he legitimately accepted Christianity. Okay. And Olaf sent him back to Greenland to evangelize the colony there. Okay. So Leif is sailing west on a missionary journey when he discovers, well, when he lands in North America. Yeah. Whether he discovered it or not is something of up for grabs because it appears that there were some shipwrecked people that he rescued who told him about it. Okay. Um, but in any event, he's the one who gets the credit for it. And he does start the first Norse colony in Greenland. Okay. Uh, excuse me, not in Greenland, in, well, we now know Newfoundland right. in Canada. Now, I should note that how you miss Greenland when you're sailing. Um, you, you need, you, well, no, not really, because you, you need to understand um, Viking ships had square sails, which means they have very limited ability to tack against the wind. Okay. And the prevailing winds come from the west. Okay. So how do you sail west when the wind is blowing in your face and you've right. only got a square sail? Well, the answer is storms. When you get a hurricane or something like that, the winds go cyclonic. So if you've got a storm there and you catch the northern end of it, it will blow you west. Wow. And so that's actually apparently how the Vikings sailed across the North Atlantic. They did it riding the edge of storms. These guys were absolutely nuts. But if that's what you're doing, I think you can see how you might miss Greenland. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and well, after he establishes the colony in the New World, they're there for a while. And then the Skrælings, which is what they called the Native Americans, it means barbarians. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you think about a Viking calling somebody a barbarian, all yeah. right? Yeah. The, the, the Skrælings, the, the, the conflicts grew too strong and they ended up abandoning the colony and going, you know, we go, went to Greenland to carry out his mission. Although they did periodically return to harvest timber. Okay. Um, when he got to Greenland, he does uh, actually successfully uh, evangelize the area. And um, uh, even his father, Eric the Red, eventually accepts Christianity. Now, to be fair, he accepted Christianity because um, his wife, Leif's mother, accepted Christianity very quickly. And following sort of a feminine version of Olaf's evangelism technique, she told Eric she wouldn't, she, yeah, she told Eric she wouldn't sleep with him unless he 
became a Christian. And eventually he broke down and became and a Christian. Then, yeah, yeah. Another kind of forced conversion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we we can we can speculate on whether or not there was a real conversion there, but yeah. in any event, the church in Greenland gets established. Okay. Okay. Well, there's 31 other stories just like that in this brand new book. If you want to pre-order it today at canonpress.com. Uh Dr. Glenn, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for having me. It.